Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malhon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malhon, I have bought uh, to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, <clears throat> that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. On uh, June 5th, June 4th or 5th in 1944, this was on the eve of the D-Day invasion of Northern Europe, World War II, uh, General Eisenhower, Supreme Allied Commander during the war, he sent out a now infamous letter that went to all 175,000 troops who were participating in the D-Day invasion the next day. Um, it's a famous letter again where he galvanizes his troops for the battle that lie ahead. But what I find so interesting about the letter is exactly how he does that in it. You see, throughout the letter, he moves pretty seamlessly from this narrow focus on the battle that lies ahead to this wider focus on the war as a whole, and then to this even wider focus on how the battle and then the war would impact the future of the world. 
You see, on the one hand, he writes about how the road ahead, this battle ahead, it's not going to be an easy one. He tells his troops that the German troops are battle-hardened. But then he sets the battle ahead, this forthcoming invasion, in the context of the wider war as a whole. And he reminds his troops that the Allies, we, we already have the momentum in this struggle. He sets the battle in the context of the entire war and notes how the Allies have already gained air supremacy in the air and how their munitions and arms production has already far surpassed the German military. And then throughout the letter, he sets these data points about the battle and about the war in a truly epic context when he writes things like, the eyes of the world are upon you and the hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. And he reminds his troops that in defeating the Nazi tyranny over the oppressed people of Europe, of which this battle and war is only one part, that they would usher in security for a free world. In short, Eisenhower reminds his troops that the battle ahead has a context. It's not an end to itself. The invasion is just one piece in this larger war, and in winning the war, they would be bringing about something bigger than just the Nazi defeat. They would be bringing about peace and security for the world. It's this sort of wide-angle lens that Eisenhower draws in order to galvanize his troops for whatever lies ahead in the battle and in the war. But I think it's, this, it's also this sort of wide-angle lens that's often helpful and even necessary for us as Christians when we're called to press forward in our discipleship. Now, few if any of us, I would imagine, will ever embark on something as epic as the D-Day invasion, uh, but in our calling as Christians, there are plenty of times in plenty of ordinary ways when the Lord calls us to do hard things, sometimes incredibly hard things. Sometimes he calls us to love incredibly hard people. And sometimes the only way we can endure and press forward in those ordinary but hard things that the Lord calls us to do is if we see them with a wide-angle lens of God's purposes and God's glory. Well, understand that thus far in Ruth, we focus somewhat narrowly on just a few characters who are part of this one obscure family and clan. Now, of course, we've seen throughout our study of Ruth the incredible workings of the providence of God working behind the scenes to move everything that's unfolded. We've also seen what godliness looks like in the person of Boaz, what sacrifice looks like for the glory of God. But if you didn't know anything else about the book, you might think that this was just a really good story about one obscure family and how God worked in their lives. And while it is that, in this final chapter, we find that the narrator sets this story in a much wider, epic kind of context of God's kingdom purposes. And for us, as we studied the passage before us, the challenge is that we too would see our own discipleship in the ordinary and even our own ordinary church as bearing witness to something far bigger and larger than ourselves. So our big idea as we study the text before us is this. Put on kingdom lenses. Put on kingdom lenses. Spectacles. Kingdom lenses. So as we study the passage before us, we're going to walk through essentially how the narrator progressively expands our perspective on this family and how the redemption of Ruth and Naomi ha has reverberating effects outward, not just for themselves, but also for the future of the world. And so our three-point outline as we study the passage before us is this. First, redeeming a family. 
Second, redeeming a future. And third, redeeming a kingdom. Redeeming a family, redeeming a future, and redeeming a kingdom. Now for context, starting with our first point, when we left off in chapter three last week, we heard Boaz tell Ruth that uh, although he was a redeemer, that is, he was in, legally in a position to help Ruth and Naomi pick up the pieces moving forward, that there was someone else who had first rights, legally speaking, to act as their redeemer. And so on the one hand, chapter three ended with good news because however things would turn out, they would turn out for the good of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz would ensure their future. But on the other hand, we've seen so far the kind of character and generosity that's part and, part, part and parcel of Boaz's character. And I think there's a part of us as the reader where we're, where we're kind of cheering for Boaz. We want Boaz to be part of Ruth and Naomi's future. So will he be part of the future? There's this tension in that, in, in, in that sense when we come to chapter four. Well, with that tension before us, the first thing we come across in chapter four is another example of Boaz's admirable character on display. Just as he had promised to do the night before, when chapter four opens, Boaz is all about business. He ventures down to the town gate of Bethlehem in order to solve this issue of Ruth and Naomi's redemption. Now, the town gate in an ancient Near East um, was often the place where business and legal transactions would be conducted. Uh, some have likened it to the, uh, the, t the town hall of an ancient Near Eastern city. And so again, Boaz, when the day dawns, is all about business. And as he sits down um, at the town gate, as soon as he arrives, we find that this near redeemer, this person who Boaz had mentioned to Ruth the night before, well, he just happens to stroll by. This is one more example of the hidden, though very important and very present providence of God working behind the scenes of the book, weaving every thread of the narrative together to ultimately accomplish his purposes. And so we find that this near redeemer, he, he walks by, and when Boaz sees him, he calls him aside. It's really interesting at this point just how he addresses him. You see, if you're reading the ESV, it says that Boaz addressed him as friend. But in Hebrew, the name here is actually a lot more impersonal than that. You know, a more accurate translation of this, as others have noted, would be to call this man Mr. So-and-so, or Joe Schmo. In Hebrew, he's called Poloni Almoni, which is a meaningless kind of rhyme, kind of like in English, we say hodgepodge. Now the point is this near redeemer who Boaz identifies and calls over is essentially nameless which is significant in a book where names have meant so much up until now. But as we press forward and Boaz and Mr. So-and-so, as we'll call him, have their back and forth interaction, we'll see just why he's nameless in the narrative. So Boaz calls him aside, and as soon as he does, Boaz again gets down to business. He calls 10 elders aside. He's bringing in the witnesses to view the proceeding that's about to unfold. And once again, we see Boaz's commendable character on display because Boaz, while he'd love to be the redeemer of Ruth and Naomi, he's not gonna skirt the law. He's not gonna resort to tenuous informalities to bring us about. And what follows, we, find, we see how he strategizes in the cleverest of ways to make Mr. So-and-so look quite poor by comparison, to put Mr. So-and-so on the back foot, as it were, so that he would have a chance to be the redeemer in this situation. So first, Boaz informs Mr. So-and-so that Naomi, she's selling her land. She's selling the land that belonged to her late husband, Elimelech, 
And as the closest relative, Mr. So-and-so has rights, legally speaking, to purchase that property. Now, a little bit of background here is a little bit important, and we touched on some of this last week. But to review, one of the responsibilities in the law of Moses of a redeemer was that if your family fell on hard times and they had to sell their property to make ends meet, or, or even if they had to sell themselves into slavery to make ends meet, you as a redeemer, as the nearest relative, were called to buy back their property or to buy them out of slavery, depending on the situation. Now, slavery is not in view here, but what had probably happened was that Elimelech, remember that's Naomi's late husband, he had probably sold their property before their 10-year sojourn to Moab. Remember, the story opens where Naomi and Elimelech and the family are sojourning for 10 years in Moab. And what had happened was probably before that, when this famine broke out in the land and Naomi and Elimelech couldn't make ends meet, that they had to sell their property, and they might have even been forced to sell themselves into slavery, but right before that happens, they go to Moab in order to kind of restart their lives so they didn't have to do that. But understand that in Israel's law, in the law of Moses, when, when an Israelite would sell their land, that was never supposed to be final nor permanent. Because the Bible tells us in the Old Testament that it was the Lord who gave the land to his people, and it was the Lord who apportioned the land in a certain way. And it was never supposed to be the case that any one tribe or any one family or any one clan would build up a massive land holding to everyone else's detriment. And so if someone had to sell their land, an Israelite had to sell their land, they didn't really sell it in the permanent kind of way. In reality, they simply transferred the rights of use of that land over to someone else for a particular period of time. And this is probably what Naomi's late husband, Elimelech, had done 10 years prior. But now, Naomi and the family, they're back, she at least Ruth and Ruth, are back in Bethlehem, and she needs to be able to support herself and her daughter-in-law. She needs land to be able to do that, to be able to produce crops and so on and so forth. And so with that in mind, a family member is called to purchase back the rights of that land so that Naomi can live again and rebuild her life. But Naomi certainly can't afford to buy back her own land, so she needs someone else. And so with that context in mind, when Boaz presents this offer to Mr. So-and-so, what does he do? Well, he jumps at the offer. You see, as Mr. So-and-so sees the situation, as he calculates all of the pros and cons in his head, he might have to provide for Naomi for a little bit of time. You know, Naomi's old. He might have to provide for her until he dies. But as Mr. So-and-so sees it, he'll also be able to reap the bounty of this land largely for himself during that time. And the key, as far as he knows, is that Naomi has no children anymore. There are no sons in her household that might inherit this land when she eventually dies. And legally speaking, that would put him in a position that when Naomi dies, he would get her land in perpetuity. It would be his. He would get to increase his own estate and the inheritance for his children if he had any. And so as Mr. So-and-so sees this whole situation unfold, this is the offer of a lifetime for him. It's a no-brainer. And so he immediately responds to Boaz, I'll do it. Count me in. And at this point, we as the reader, maybe we're a bit disappointed. How can this Mr. So-and-so, Joe Schmo, jump in at the 11th hour and save the day? What about this great love story between Boaz and Ruth? How will that turn out? But Boaz, it seems, has planned this. He's expected that this would happen. And so now he shifts gears. 
and he introduces the other part of the equation. The land, Boaz tells Mr. So-and-so, it's a package deal. It comes with Ruth the Moabite. If you buy the field, he says, you, ought to, you also have to marry her, and you have to raise up offspring in the name of her dead husband's family. Now, if Boaz was put in an awkward position himself back in chapter 3 when Ruth came to him in the middle of the night, but he responded with over-the-top elation positively, with kindness and gratitude, Mr. So-and-so is the opposite of that. Because he's put into a really awkward position at this point, and his response, unlike Boaz, that's classless. You see, in his mind, the introduction of Ruth into the equation changes everything. Because now he's being called upon not just to get a piece of land that's going to benefit him permanently. No, he's called upon to also invoke what was known in the law as the Levite marriage provision, which would require him to raise up children on behalf of Ruth's dead husband. And then if they had children together in the future, that would mean that those children had a perpetual right not only to Naomi's land, but also to his estate too. It's no longer the win-win situation he thought it was. It's now a decision with a steep cost for his own estate and for the future of his children if he had any. And so Mr. So-and-so, just as quickly as he entered the deal, backs out of the deal. And we can see why, at this point, he's nameless. Because his actions here are pretty shameful. As he reads the situation, he's only willing to redeem if it doesn't have a real cost. You know, he might love the idea of being perceived as righteous and being the righteous one to invoke the uh, redeemer provision and step in and save the day for Ruth and Naomi. But when the rubber meets the road and the real cost of righteousness surfaces, he doesn't want anything to do with it. In his eyes, every decision must be evaluated not through a kingdom lens, but instead economically through the lens of personal gain and loss. Now, a few weeks ago, I came across a story where a company in the United States had to make um, a similar kind of decision. Um, there was a report uh, that surfaced a few weeks ago that Boeing, the giant aerospace corporation, uh, made the decision that it was no longer going to compete for fixed cost government contracts. Fascinating story, I know. I'll send you the link if you're interested. Um, but apparently Boeing has lost over the course of the last few years a ton of money. We're talking billions and billions of dollars by agreeing to design and produce new aircraft for the U.S. government at a fixed cost. Um, the new Air Force One being the primary example of that. But then when the, when the various programs balloon way over the cost, as they inevitably do, Boeing's been forced to eat the excess. And at the end of the day, they've been giving the U.S. government a pretty sweet deal on a bunch of new planes. But now they've reached the point where it's no longer profitable or advantageous to them for do, them to do so. The cost of charity to the government is too steep, and so they're backing away for at least a time from competing in contracts that stipulate a fixed cost. Now, at the end of the day, we can, we can understand it's a reasonable and understandable approach for a company that's in the business of making a profit to do. But is that also the same economic approach that we bring into relationships or serving opportunities? Do we see people in the church, for example, more as commercial transactions, useful only insofar as they benefit me? You see, maybe for some of you, and for some of us, uh, Mr. So-and-so's approach here, maybe it hits closer to home than we'd like to admit. 
Ask yourself, are there questions when I care far more about appearing righteous than actually being righteous? Times where I'm more willing to serve someone, but only insofar as it makes me look good and doesn't involve a real cost. You see, if our true goal is simply to appear righteous, like Mr. So-and-so, well, we'll always be walking through life, weighing the pros and cons of serving other people and loving our brothers and sisters against how it enhances our image. And as soon as the costs outweigh any potential gain, as soon as it's no longer profitable, we're out. But loving people and serving people as the Lord would have us do, it looks like Boaz. It willingly absorbs the cost even when there's little to be gained or, or even a lot to lose as it relates to your image. At the end of the day, we're called to look at people at any opportunities we have through this wide-angle kingdom lens. We're called to look at other people in the church, particularly as, as our brothers and sisters in Christ, as, as co-laborers in the gospel, and not simply as tools to use for our benefit. That was Mr. So-and-so's approach, not Boaz's. And friends, the reason we can absorb that kind of cost like Boaz does, well, is because Jesus Christ bore the cost for us when it was of no advantage to him. Now, returning to our text, the narrative in these opening six verses has slowed us down quite a bit. But now that Mr. So-and-so has relinquished his rights, and Boaz, on the other hand, has taken up his rights, he, 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 he immediately um, is eager to serve. In the presence of the witnesses, he and Mr. So-and-so immediately confirm this transaction with this sandal ritual, and then the elders, they step in and they confirm with their own mouths this transaction that just unfolded as witnesses. They then bless Ruth and Boaz. They pray that their house together would be as fruitful as their famous ancestors, Rachel and Leah, who together raised up the 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And then Perez, who was the unexpected son of a union between an Israelite and a Canaanite. In short, Ruth and Naomi have now officially been redeemed by a godly man who acted through and through according to the spirit of the law. And the people of Bethlehem now pray that this act would have reverberating effects into their future. And this leads to the next part of our passage where we see how Boaz's act of redemption does indeed bear fruit for their future. Now at this point in the story, when we come to verses 13 through 17 here, the major tension has been resolved. Boaz is the redeemer. And Naomi and Ruth's restoration has been sealed. It's good news. But at the same time, there is still a little bit of tension in the narrative. Because we don't know whether Ruth will continue to be barren. And therefore, whether this budding family will even have a future. You may remember that, that Ruth and her sister-in-law Orpah, they were married for 10 years to Naomi's sons. And in that time, both Ruth and Orpah were barren. Neither had children. And so the question remains, will Ruth stay barren after her redemption by Boaz? And is this whole work of redemption for nothing in the long term? Well, fortunately, we're not left in suspense all that long because when we come to verse 13, we read the good news that after Ruth and Boaz wed, the Lord gives conception and Ruth bears a son. Now, one of the interesting features of the book of Ruth as a whole is that the name of the Lord is only mentioned twice by the narrator of the book. 
Now, we do hear the name of the Lord uttered on the lips of the characters of the book, but, but the only other time the narrator has mentioned God at all up until this point was in the beginning of the first chapter when he told us that the Lord had visited his people, lifted the famine, and provided bread again for Bethlehem, the house of bread. But now, as the narrator draws things to a close, he invokes the name of the Lord a second time in order to tell us that it's also by his hand that an empty womb has been filled, and a future, the future of Ruth and Naomi, would indeed be secure. And the women of the town who had earlier expressed shock at Naomi's return to Bethlehem, as soon as the Lord grants conception and she bears a son, what do they do? They now praise. They offer this commentary of praise for how the Lord has stepped in and radically reversed the trajectory of her future. But what's interesting is that up until this point, Boaz has been identified as the Redeemer. But now when we come to verse 14 in context, it's this newborn baby who is identified as Naomi's Redeemer. Why? Well, because as the women respond to the birth of this child with their commentary of praise, they note that his birth marks not just the restoration of the family line, but also the security for their future. This will be the son who will care for Naomi in her old age, and also the one who would promulgate the family line moving forward. This child, we learn in verse 17, is called Obed. It's a name in Hebrew that means servant. But commentators note that here that the name is interesting because it's actually a name that's derived from the longer name Obadiah. Obed is a shortened version of Obadiah. And several people in the Bible bear the name Obadiah. Obadiah is a name that means servant of Yahweh, but Obed is simply servant. And it raises the question, who will he serve? Will he serve Naomi or will he serve the Lord? Well, the answer is both. Obed would serve Naomi in his old age, but he would also be the child who would serve the Lord's wider redemptive purposes in history when everything up until now has seemed somewhat hopeless. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But for now, understand that Naomi's hope for the future, Ruth's hope for the future, the family's hope for the future is wrapped up in the unexpected birth of a child. Friends, that sounds a little like our hope too, doesn't it? You see, as incredible as it was that everything that led up to this birth, as unexpected as it was that these, this, this woman who had been barren for 10 years would actually be able to bear a son, even more incredible is the birth of a son to a virgin. But that's exactly how our Lord Jesus entered the world. And in doing so, he not, he not only redeemed just one person's future, he redeemed the future of all of God's people and everyone who look upon him by faith alone. You know, in Luke chapter 2, well-known passage of scripture. I'm not sure if we read that during Christmas or not, but in that passage, we read what happens when Jesus is only a baby, when he's only 40 days old. And in that passage, Jesus's mother Mary and father figure Joseph, they bring him to the temple in Jerusalem. In that passage, we read how they arrive in the temple of Jerusalem 40 days after Jesus is born, like any ordinary Jew would do. They bring their firstborn son to the temple to present him to the Lord. And when they do that, they're met by this random man named Simeon, who they don't otherwise know. But Simeon, we learn, had been waiting. He'd been waiting for this child. 
In fact, we read in the text that he had been waiting for the consolation of Israel his whole life. And when Jesus arrives, we read that Simeon scoops him up in his arms and he proclaims with this commentary of praise, just like the women do in Naomi's day, proclaims a praise on Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus would do. He proclaims, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Just as Naomi, in her old age, recognized a secure future for her family in Obed, so too Simeon, in his old age, having waited and waited for the consolation of Israel, recognizes that at last, there is a secure future for all of God's people, you and me, and all who profess the name of Jesus Christ in Christ. The only question then is, if you, have you found that same security in Christ in your own life? Here, some of you, I know, have probably experienced great loss this year. Maybe it feels like the future, as you look on the horizon, is pretty dark and bleak. Others of you, maybe you're in the position where the future seems full of hope and promise, but, but wherever you fall on that continuum, understand that the future is even more hopeless than it was for Naomi upon returning to Bethlehem in chapter one, when she could only utter a few words and insisted that people call her not Naomi, but Mara, which means bitterness, because in her heart of heart, she was bitter in the depths of woe. Understand that if Christ is not at the heart of our present, our situation is even worse than it was for Naomi. But if he is, rest assured that despite whatever tears, whatever struggles, whatever loss we've been called to endure in the present, that there is one who's in the business of great reversals. There is one who is a restorer of lives and who promises to nourish us as his people, whether old or young, in our own lives. Now, returning to our text, understand that all of the events up until this point, they've all been steered, strategically so, by the providence and kindness of God, such that what looked like it would be so unlikely at the beginning of Ruth has now come to pass, but only because the Lord has been steering everything in between. But now that we reach the conclusion of the book, we find that the Lord has been providentially working all the things he had, not simply for Ruth and Naomi and this family or even their future, but ultimately he's been working all of these things together for, to ensure the future of his kingdom. When we come to the final part of our passage, friends, our perspective widens the furthest out that it's been in the entire book. So third, this leads to our third point, redeeming a kingdom. And here we come to our final passage, verses 18 through 22. And we notice that the book of Ruth ends on this somewhat short 10-person genealogy. It might not seem like an exciting way to end a book, a list of names, but it's through this genealogy that we learn why the narrator went to great lengths to tell us the story he told us in the first place. Now, the whole book we've mentioned before is an amazing story of the providence and the kindness of God. But in reading it, we can't lose sight of the context that's enveloped the whole of what we've read. Keep in mind that the very, in the very first passage we read when the book of Ruth opened, we learned the context for the book of Ruth. We learned that the whole book unfolds in the days when the judges ruled. Learned that all the way back in chapter 1. And if we turn to the book of Judges, we would be reminded that the days in which the judges ruled 
wasn't a great time in Israel's history. In fact, at the end of Judges, we hear four times, some four times, that in those days, the days of the Judges, there was no king in Israel, and as a result, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was spiritual anarchy in Israel because there was no king to lead the people in godliness. But now we learn that in preserving and redeeming Ruth and Naomi, these two women of little consequence in an otherwise terribly immoral time in Israel's history, that the Lord was working all of these things so that he would bring about a king after his own heart in the grandson of Obed, King David. You see, even during a terribly immoral time in Israel's history, the Lord has been so gracious in providentially upholding this family and moving the wheels of history forward through them for the sake of his kingdom purposes. And if we were to go through the names of this short genealogy, well, we would see God's gracious hand accented even further. Notice the genealogy begins with this guy named Perez. Who was Perez? Well, Perez, we find in Genesis 38, uh, he was the son of an illicit union between Judah and someone he thought was a prostitute, but in fact turned out to be his Canaanite daughter-in-law. Not great. Later, we come across Salmon, Boaz's dad. Who was Salmon? Well, he wasn't a fish, but he was the man who married Rahab, who was another foreigner and who really was a prostitute. You see, this genealogy isn't intended to highlight the pedigree of Boaz's ancestors, but it is designed to elevate for us the hand, the gracious hand of the Lord in preserving a people, even after divine displeasure on his people in the days of the judges, and particularly upon Elimelech and his sons. All of this is for the sake of his kingdom purposes. And of course, we know that this genealogy that ends here in King David, Israel's greatest king in the Old Testament, still incomplete. But when Matthew's gospel opens in the New Testament, he takes this genealogy the rest of the way. And we find that it wasn't just for David or for Israel that the Lord preserved these two women of little or no account. It was for the greater David, who would follow some 28 generations later in Jesus Christ. You see, the narrator, when we come to the end of the book, he widens the lens beyond Ruth and Naomi's restoration and beyond their future in Obed to the unified kingdom of, of, of David. But what the New Testament does is widen the lens even further to show that in the end, friends, it's all about Jesus, who brought about in his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, an eternal kingdom of which we in Christ are citizens of. So what do we take away from all of this? Well, I think it's important to note that the Lord brought about all of this through his providential in hand, in part through the ordinary faithfulness of Boaz. Now, of course, Boaz was presented throughout the narrative as this incredibly godly individual who exercised great faithfulness in his approach to the law and, and great compassion in his approach to Ruth and Naomi. But it's not as if Boaz had done anything miraculous in the narrative, right? He didn't raise the dead. He didn't heal the sick. He simply loved the Lord, heeded his word, and followed his law with a heart that was tuned to his glory. And lest we put Boaz too high on a pedestal, recognize, friends, that the Lord also uses our ordinary faithfulness to accomplish his kingdom purposes too. He's pleased to use things like the proclamation of the gospel to draw people to faith in Christ and to nourish his saints. 
He uses the ordinary service of people in his church to meet the needs of his people. And so as you step in to wherever it is the Lord has called you, when you bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ in whatever ordinary context to whatever ordinary people the Lord puts in your life, pursue those things with a wide-angle kingdom lens. Not as if our labors build the kingdom of God or anything like that, but knowing that our labors in the Lord are never in vain, and the Lord uses them, and he's pleased to use them to bless his saints and to glorify his name. So to wrap up our sermon, our text, and the book of Ruth as a whole, let me leave us with this. Know that the Lord brings about great reversals. Know that the Lord brings about great reversals. When the story of Ruth ends, we've come full circle. Every problem that began the narrative has now been dramatically solved. House of Bread, Bethlehem, has been filled with bread. And Ruth and Naomi have also been filled with bread. They've been provided food for a future, a great future from now on. An empty womb has also been filled. And an Obed represents the future hope for the family. And a throne that was empty without a king has been filled by Obed's, great, or Obed's grandson, David. What looked impossible at the beginning of the narrative by human striving, especially when Naomi was in the depth of woe and couldn't even pick herself up, turned out to be dramatically reversed, but only because the Lord has stepped in and steered everything that's unfolded for his ordained ends. And likewise, in the fullness of time, friends, God reversed the great predicament that has plagued humanity since the beginning by sending the ancestor of David into the world to reverse our futures too, to reverse the misery of this world and to bring about a redemption far greater than Ruth or Naomi experienced. It's a re reversal, a great reversal that's already happened in history, a reversal that we partake in now only through faith in Jesus Christ that becomes our reversal and part of our story when we trust in Christ. And it's a reversal that will in fact be completed and consummated when Jesus Christ comes again. And so see the world, friends. See history. See your own ordinary lives, your own ordinary serving, your own ordinary loving of brothers and sisters and family members through this kind of wide-angle kingdom lens. And take heart, because God's in the business of great reversals. Pray with me. Father, we do give you thanks for your word, how you so often expand our perspective so that we can see not just the ordinary things that you've done in history um, through the lives of these two women, but, but also seeing how you have worked redemption in a far greater way in Jesus Christ. And in that way, this, this story is not just about Ruth and Naomi, but, but for us as well, for those who know and trust in, in Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for assuring us that you are on your throne, that you rule and reign, and that the wheels of history are moved infallibly towards your ordained ends. Will you comfort us in our grief? Will you comfort us if we find ourselves like Naomi was in the beginning of the book, um, depressed, sad, unable to move? Would you inject hope in our lives knowing that you reign on your throne? And would you help us as we serve and love other people to see other people, not through a lens of personal gain, but to see other people through a kingdom lens and to step in even when true cost is involved and to love people well because we know that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you were the one who first loved us. Remind us of these things. Assure us of these things. We pray all of these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.